everyone to the podcast of Gas Pathways, a new multimedia communication platform dedicated to innovation and technology in the natural gas industry. Today, I am joined by Stephen Lua, CEO of Unitrove, who is looking to make the case for using liquid hydrogen as a zero carbon fuel in shipping. Stephen, glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Joseph. Pleased to be here. Um, so there is far more attention on the use uh, of compressed hydrogen as a fuel to reduce um, shipping emissions, um, whereas uh, I've seen relatively little interest in, in liquid hydrogen. Um, why do you think that is the case? Yeah, I think with the compressed hydrogen route, it is one of the more sort of easily or handleable type of fuel. Um, it's a bit more accessible for those in the industry that uh, understand sort of gases and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Once you start moving into something like liquid hydrogen, um, you're also now then dealing with handling a cryogenic. Uh, so liquid hydrogen being uh, liquid at minus 253 degrees Celsius is something that makes it a lot more challenging for those that uh, don't really have that understanding of how to handle cryogenics. Um, much, much more difficult, I think, yeah. And firstly, how, how truly net zero would the fuel be? And um, can we maybe talk about what kind of costs would be involved in, in developing it? Um, uh, do, you, do you envisage using green hydrogen uh, as, as, you know, the, and then liquefying it? Yeah, so um, again, you know, this, this opens a massive debate that I'm sure many uh, that are in the industry sort of understand. There's this whole big debate about hydrogen and the way it's being produced. Obviously, we can talk about uh, green hydrogen, the idea that we want to produce hydrogen from renewable sources of electricity. Uh, and then, mm -hmm. of course, we've got the case for the blue side where we're taking natural gas and maybe um, reforming that and capturing the carbon through CCUS. Um, and if we look at the complexion of the hydrogen today, um, we can't get away from the fact that the vast majority of it is 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 made from sort of fossil sources, probably over 90% mm -hmm. plus, uh, mm -hmm. and none of which is actually done via uh, carbon capture uh, storage, which is where the blue hydrogen movement wants to go in. Um, mm -hmm. And if we then look at liquid hydrogen specifically as a market, there are very few players today that are able to produce liquid hydrogen. You're, you're talking mainly to the industrial air gas companies uh, mm -hmm. who, as I say, have been serving the, the industries such as the, as the space sector, for example, um, that might require liquid hydrogen as a rocket propulsion, um, mm -hmm. or some of these other fringe industries like your semiconductor industries, where there's also a use case there. Um, so in terms of the actual production of sort of green liquid hydrogen, it, it, it's not really been something that many companies have been looking at or, or right now and up to the state uh, have been sort of working on, uh, mainly because um, there's never really been a need. And even for these fringe industries like uh, the space sector, like um, the semiconductor industry, you know, they're, they're lucky in that sense, or they would say so, to even just have somebody who's prepared to produce that for them. It's such a niche mm -hmm. industry that there aren't, there isn't much need to actually produce uh, large quantities of it. 
obviously that's going to have to change going forwards if we're going to talk about moving towards a, a net zero future by by 2050 and as we start to see the pathways like into um, planes trains um, ships which is obviously where we're focusing on as a beginning point um, and we can come to the reasons why uh, in a bit but um, there's going to have to be a radical shift and for us yes of course we would love to um, produce liquid hydrogen from green sources that will be our ultimate ambition um, the pathway to getting there of course is going to be challenging um, certainly in terms of the fact that we're trying to develop deliver this um, infrastructure piece by uh, this year hopefully for the COP26 um, mm. we need to obviously find some way of being able to commission that system um, so we're going to have to look and, and, and see how we're best able to do that and obviously going forwards once the vessels start coming in we can start preparing to to make the business case and, and make those investments as and as when we need to. Mm -hmm. So you will be using cryogenic uh, technology so um, your company's experience comes in handy then uh, because you've also in LNG I mean you're also behind building a LNG bunkering facility in, in North England. Correct, that's right. Uh, we in fact actually built the UK's first LNG bunkering facility in the Teesside area, mm -hmm. um, which quite uh, fascinatingly is actually quite a politicised area at the moment. Um, and back in 2015, it was very interesting experience for us um, because historically we'd actually been doing a lot of work um, with, with LNG as a use for road fuel. And mm -hmm. much of the uh, developments that we had done was for building fueling stations for heavy duty trucks uh, and buses and things like that, um, not just for LNG, but also with uh, compressed natural gas as well, CNG. And uh, so we've actually been involved in the natural gas space for quite a, a number of years, well over a decade, and our experience goes beyond that. Um, but I think that is one of the main reasons why we see hydrogen as a very uh, promising pathway going forwards because a lot of the hydrogen technology today is built upon the foundations of natural gas. Um, if we talk about compressed hydrogen, for example, a lot of the technologies for that has come from the compressed natural gas space. And likewise, mm -hmm. now we're moving into the liquid hydrogen space. A lot of those technologies are birthed from the liquid natural gas space. And um, so I see that the way forward is, is not by throwing away um, the understanding of how these technologies work, but actually building upon those and using them in the, the right way um, that we know that we can. And I think the LNG world has shown us what is possible of what the future could hold for something like liquid hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And your technological concept um as we said you know there's not not that many uh companies looking into liquid hydrogen um at least as a shipping fuel but um how does your concept how would you differentiate it from from similar concepts yeah so maybe the lng bunkering facility that we delivered to teesside in 2015 is a very good example to start and um i think also it's quite interesting if you speak to the shipping companies that some of them will also see lng as a relatively new prospect for them as well especially since they're very used to the heavy fuel oils 
marine gas oils, the very traditional petrochemical products. So even for them, um, LNG is quite a, a unique product to handle. Um, but if we look at the way that we delivered the system there, it's a relatively what I call small or nanoscale type unit. And it's mm -hmm. a unit that's self-contained um, and ultimately you can, you can bring it to the port side. It's not a permanently fixed piece of infrastructure like a lot of people might think in terms of the way of a traditional piece of infrastructure. But you can literally drop the box in and plug it up and you're up and away. And if that facility at the future needed to be removed, you could just disconnect the, the connections and move that unit away. Um, and it's actually smaller than some of these other containerized type units. So some people might be building facilities in a sort of a 40 foot container. Um, this would be probably smaller than a 10 foot type uh, sort of uh, size um, footprint mm -hmm. so um, this is a very small scale um, product but not just that uh, in the way that we delivered the infrastructure there the storage for the fuel is actually also mobile as well so the idea was that we take these these 40 foot ISO containers they would be loaded with the LNG product in this case and they would be brought to the to the port side and there it would actually be connected to our system and then our system would then connect to the ship that it needed to be to need to be fueled and then the product would be offloaded via our system and once that transfer had been completed then those mobile mobile storage units could actually be taken away which is really useful because um, that means that there's no sort of permanent storage of flammable product at the port side um, it's basically brought in as and when that fueling needs to happen and offloaded and then taken away uh, and so that makes it a lot easier for, for example, the ports and things like that to, to you know, they're, they're a lot happier with this kind of uh, arrangement because it means that, you know, there's no complications in permitting issues or in um, the idea that they're going to have to look after permanent storage of flammable products, which maybe then goes into what we call the Comar regulations and things like that. Um, and the ports are not really, it's not really their kind of um, expertise to have to look at those, those kind of things. So we see something very similar in the way that we want to deliver liquid hydrogen. Um, again, by looking at bringing containers of this of this product in and connecting it to the system and offloading it and basically moving these containers away. Now, that actually contrasts with what some in the industry call truck to ship fueling, where basically they bring a, a road tanker with the product and they connect a hose across to the ship and they simply connect. And that, that's fine to some uh, in some respects. It's it's a, it's a very traditional way that um, bunkering operations for for your petro, uh, petrochemical, your typical heavy fuel oils, marine gas oils are are, are done. Um, but one of the things that is missing from that jigsaw piece is the safety factor. Um, for example, I'm bringing my my expertise back in from the road transport industry, where the big questions were, well, if we've got a big storage of flammable product. You know, how far should that tank be away from the vehicles that it's fueling? And likewise, you know, should we not be asking the same question for, for a big large ship and a tanker? I mean, could we expect to see maybe separation distances between the road tanker and, and the ship? And, you know, I think a lot of people are missing that question. Uh, and not just that kind of safety factor, but also the fact that our unit will contain additional safety features like um, gas detection, like breakaway couplings in case a ship drifts away and things like that, like ESD systems where, for example, if the ship wants to shut down the shore side or the shore wants to shut down the ship side, we can do that. And that's all done there, our box basically. In the mm -hmm. 
And you've proposed building this uh, liquid hydrogen bunking facility. Um, do you have an idea of the project site? I mean, you're going to, you're planning to showcase it at um, the UN climate conference, right, in, in November. Um, so yeah, do you, do you have a, a project site in mind? Um, have you had any uh, initial talks with, with authorities, with investors about this scheme? Yeah, I mean, of course, we put our press release out not massively long ago, and already that's given us quite a, uh, some new leads as well in terms of our project. And actually, when we built this facility, um, of course, we've got experience with the Teesside area. We know that's heavily politicized, um, especially in terms of the idea that um, these are sort of areas that are typically forgotten in this kind of new, new age of uh, technologies and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, they're, they're also um, on the radar. Um, but of course, you know, we've had many other organizations, ports, not just in the UK, but also um, globally as well, that has had uh, sort of uh, an interest in what we're, we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, when we, we set about this project, we didn't necessarily um, think about um, who the, the end user was necessarily going to be. And if I'm honest, you know, we, we, we haven't lined that up yet. But what we could see um, was a lot of movement that's happening globally. I mean, if we look, for example, to, to Norway, for example, um, I believe that they've already received the, one of the first liquid hydrogen powered ferries. And they look to be operating that on liquid hydrogen as early as um, the beginning of next year. And of course, these announcements would have been made some two, three years ago. Um, on the onset of the project because obviously it takes time for these vessels to be built and already I know Norway again is a leading area um, where there are other announcements whether they say by 2023 or uh, 2025 there are new vessels that are coming coming in already and of course these projects take some two years three years to to, to go through that process so you know we, what we wanted to do was to make sure that once we built this thing we would be basically in and around the same time as when these vessels were also coming out as well uh, for us, it didn't quite make sense to wait until these vessels were there and then build the infrastructure, which would add then some additional years. The idea was to kind of almost uh, beat that chicken and egg problem by trying to say, okay, as these first hydrogen vessels are coming out, so the infrastructure is also matching and that is coming out at roughly around the same time. And I think hopefully by us being able to showcase the technology for the infrastructure site this year and the early fuelings you know, happening um, maybe at the beginning of next year, at least in some parts of the world, then um, hopefully, you know, we, we see there's definitely a pathway forwards in terms of where our system can go. And um, certainly we've had inquiries from California as well. Uh, we know that places like Korea um, are working on, on, on these kind of technologies quite, quite strongly as well. So there's a whole host of opportunities out there. Um, so we have no, no worry from that kind of point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... Um chicken and egg problem is always you know a challenge um you know when when you're developing a new new energy source i mean you know we've had we've seen that problem in in it well we've seen that challenge um come up with um you know developing lng as 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 a fuel and shipping initially in some markets and also um also using lng in 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 trucking um you know it you, this project's at a very early stage of development, um, so I understand that um, it, it, it can be difficult. To, 
to to say when you might commission it um but do you have a a rough schedule in mind what would you like to achieve well as i say you know i think the the cop 26 climate change conference will be a good starting point for us you know hopefully we'll have a mm-hmm. physical demonstration unit there they can you know people can then look at it and see it and you know uh, then it's kind of translating out from you know a piece of paper to something that actually is physically tangible um mm-hmm. and what's fascinating is the fact that you know liquid hydrogen is not although it's new for the industry it's not a new technology uh, as i've said to mm-hmm. some people we've been using liquid hydrogen to send rockets to space since the 1960s and actually mm-hmm. a lot of the technology that is going into our system is derived from that industry you know we're using sort of couplings and uh, valve technologies that are stemming from these industries that have long tested these 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 units and and understand it and you know so it's not the case that we don't understand how the technology works it's the case that we're actually mm-hmm. now trying to bring these technologies into a new application area you know so if we're if we're able to fuel rockets since the 1960s with liquid hydrogen i don't see any reason why you know some many 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 decades already down the road we can't be using the similar technologies to be doing the same thing for ships it's um it's not as challenging as, as people think it is mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um okay and as a company with with a footprint in in lng bunkering um but also looking to 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 evolve your business into in and you know branch out into liquid hydrogen fuel um how should we treat lng as a solution uh, to decarbonizing uh shipping so um you know we have a situation now where the still the vast majority of um ships are running on fuel oil um and the imo regulations have obviously improved matters but um you know there's still a lot of work to be done uh, to decarbonize shipping um some will argue uh in the lng industry that um you know all focus should be on on expanding the use of lng that uh, you know it's a product that's ready now you've got the supply uh you know the infrastructure is developing um and focus less on you know future fuels like like hydrogen like ammonia um and you know on the other side others say well focusing on lng that locks in you know gas gas demand for for much longer and it will kind of prevent the the deployment of these new fuels what's kind of your view on that yeah i think um for me it's a very interesting uh, hopefully i i'm able to provide an interesting perspective um, not least yeah. because actually i've spent the past decade or so uh, in the natural gas industry so i completely understand where those who are advocates for lng going forwards um now starting to see you know the the, the first signs of the green grasses you know, especially in the maritime sector where now they're saying oh look we're starting to see more and more LNG vessels. It's starting to to grow. There's big traction. You know, yes, I I understand that. Um, and you know, um, especially with the fact that also, I've committed quite a lot of time to the development of international standards and regulations around LNG fueling technologies and and, and things mm. like that as well. So, um, so I completely appreciate that. Um, but at the same time, 
I also appreciate the fact that there are these new technologies out there and they are gaining some traction. Um, and we do have to move towards a world where if we want to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, then we should have to try to use everything that we can and know to be able to achieve that. So from our perspective, you know, we, we don't we don't settle on on, on on a technology. We're all about enabling possibilities. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, um, some may say, oh, well, you know, who are you to kind of push this new renewable hydrogen movement? You've been spending a decade long in the natural gas world. Well, I can't mm -hmm. hide that. No, I, I'm not going to hide that either. Um, but I would say that had it not been for my experience in the natural gas industry, uh, I would not have been presented the opportunity to see what would be possible with the decarbonizing of, of shipping. Um, mm -hmm. It was when, as I said, you know, we, we were traditionally involved in the development of refueling of, of heavy duty trucks and things like that. And it just landed on our desk that, oh, by the way, there's a company that's interested in LNG uh, fueling of, of ships. This is something you could do. And we said, well, you know, um, trucks, ships, is there much difference? Probably not. OK, let's let's just apply what we know to a new situation. And here we were moving from fueling of trucks to fueling of ships. And then we realized that actually the, the amount of quantities of fuel that shipping takes in relation to sort of your trucks was, was a magnitude of difference. You know, I used to stand there thinking, oh, how many trucks do I have to fuel in order to, 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 to do the equivalent of a single ship? And these were two vessels that were coming in twice a week, you know, taking up to 50 tons of product at a time. Um, so I think that the LNG industry um, needs to think about, you know, and of course I know that there will always be two sides of the coin, um, but at least from my perspective of LNG, I, I, I feel kind of blessed to have, have understood what the market was all about, what the customers actually really wanted, and also built that expertise up that LNG actually provides. You know, LNG, for example, is still a cryogenic fuel, minus 162 degrees Celsius. It's flammable. Yes, maybe not quite as flammable as, 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 as hydrogen, but it, it sets the pathway for starting with this expertise and building on top of that. And actually, if I think about the involvement of standards that I'm, I'm now involved in with the hydrogen technologies, a lot of the standards are built upon uh, other existing standards. So the hydrogen technologies will go, hey, what natural gas fueling standards have we got? And what can we can we use that as a starting point to build our hydrogen uh, fueling standards? And the same way for liquid hydrogen, they'll say, hey, can we use these LNG standards as a starting point to be able to then mm -hmm. develop liquid hydrogen uh, standards? And so, for me, it's it's more a case of um, less focus on the technology and more about the possibilities. And I'm not here to say that liquid hydrogen is the future because I can't I can't know that. Maybe someday it will be ammonia. Maybe it will be one of these other things like uh, I know in the industry they talk about liquid organic hydrogen carriers and even things like sodium borohydride, solid hydrogen. There's so many innovations mm -hmm. that are going on. I mean, and of course, we can't discount the, the other side of the coin, which is electric and battery technology, which of course will still progress. And people are talking now about flow batteries and things. And you know, as a company, we, we, we don't see ourselves as trying to pigeonhole ourselves into specific technologies we just want to see what the possibilities are and we want to use our expertise going forward to, to support that 
I see. And how would you characterize the approach of um, the UK government to to you know these future fuels like hydrogen? You know, how supportive are they? I've um, I've been lucky to kind of uh, be involved in some sort of uh, groups quite close to the government in terms of uh, their policies for, for um, the energy transition, especially in the hydrogen space, where that's very hot topic, especially for the government at the moment. I mean, I know um, the UK government has been badged for a very long time to release their uh, national hydrogen strategy, um, and they've only done so very recently, even though other countries had spent, you know, had already delivered theirs maybe some number of years ago already. Um, personally, I read it and I didn't feel that there was uh, much much volume to that hydrogen plan. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was just a lot of rehashed possibilities. They talked of grants that they'd already sort of delivered and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. The other insight that I, I, I can kind of provide is that um, whilst we we can see in the media, for example, already people are debating about uh, does blue hydrogen make any sense? Is it just propping up fossil fuel companies or should we be going down the green road? And the UK government has taken a very firm stance to say, actually, we, we back blue hydrogen as well as green hydrogen. But mm -hmm. because they know that uh, there is potential for negative press on, on the blue hydrogen, actually, the UK government, they don't actually want to refer to hydrogen by, by, by way of colour. So they will try to avoid the use of the terms green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, and they would much prefer to talk of low carbon hydrogen. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's a very interesting narrative. Um, I think if I'm giving my personal view on this whole net zero by 2050, one of the biggest things that's missed from this conversation is, is it going to be done renewably or is it going to be done non-renewably? Because I think a lot of people are saying, hey, yes, we of course we can achieve zero emissions by 2050, but maybe the mechanisms by which we're doing that is not necessarily renewable. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's where there's this whole big dilemma and battle from the one side and the other. Um, and saying, no, this way is the way to do it. No, this way is the way to do it. Uh, and I think that narrative of just simply saying, well, it's all about eliminating carbon emissions is the end objective. But some people don't like the way that how that has been done. You know, I think one of the arguments I have taken to some people is imagine we had a technology where we could capture the world's carbon. Like, you know, we could capture all the carbon in the world. But does it then make it right to continue to burn coal? People would say, well, you're still in a net zero uh, outcome. But some people don't like this idea of uh, doing it in a way that is, is not seen to be a, a sustainable one. So I think that is. You know, blue hydrogen in, a, in some way is a lighter version of that but if we take it to that extreme that's almost what we're kind of saying mm -hmm. so you you agree with the government's uh, approach you know being technologically agnostic you know and and you know balancing green and blue hydrogen i mean it con contrasts with the uh european commission's approach which is you know very much uh, slanted in favour of green hydrogen, at least as the, the end destination, right? Uh, and they see blue hydrogen as more a, you know, short to medium term solution, especially for just, you know, changing the existing grey hydrogen supply and making it clean. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there's there's one thing about setting an intention to do things and setting the ambitions, and of course, all countries around the world are going to have a different view on uh, the way way to go. Um, obviously, the UK government has decided to back a, a twin approach. Say, uh, maybe they will call it a more agnostic approach. And as you mm -hmm. say quite rightly, that the EU is focused on a more uh, green approach. Um, certainly, you know, um, I am. I am much more in favour of, of taking that green approach, but having come from a natural gas background and understanding you know, a lot of the complexities around the energy space and the reasons mm -hmm. why um, there is this lobby for blue hydrogen, um, I can appreciate why governments, for example, like the UK government, would would want to would want to support that. You know, you couldn't throw out a whole industry uh, and expect that something's going to fill that void that's just far too risky for you know, uh, the government's point of view um, so i think it's a very complex question and it's very easy to, to be on one side of the coin and say hey we should just go completely green but then you know the reality is that some if we talk about hydrogen 90 percent or whatever it is is, is is from fossil sources how can we ramp up the, the, the green production of, of hydrogen um, especially with the economics and everything else, which again, I appreciate the, the, the term of cost always comes back uh, into this equation. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm to respond to the point about cost, I think, again, you know, the, the, the pushback from sort of the, the, the kind of the, the, the blue hydrogen industry is always, but, but how much is it going to cost? We can do it more cost effectively. Mm -hmm. And I would always say, but you know, it's it's all well being, you know, cheap or cheaper or cost effective, but maybe one day that cost effective fuel will be banned and therefore you can't use it. So it doesn't matter how cheap your fuel is. Um, it just won't be a viable option going forwards. And and that's something that we kind of um, suggest to some of the you know companies out there that are saying, well, you know, what's the economics of this? How's it going to work for us? And we can see how the global politics around energy is, is moving towards this, this green transition. People can argue all they want about, oh, we don't like the fact that governments give us subsidies to these areas or that, uh, you know, they're applying these levies and things like that. But these things will happen. We, we have to accept this is going to happen. Um, and anybody that is going to reject that possibility, I think, is, is going to um, unfortunately see see their kind of case move by the wayside and we've seen many examples of that happen um, so i think everybody has to understand the political framework around which we talk about energy and to think what is the sensible option and in my mind the only way that the world is going to move forward is towards these lower carbon options towards a zero carbon option and they will do everything possible whether technologically or whether economically, whether that's applying even uh, greater carbon taxes, whether it's banning certain types of fuels um, or whether it's subsidizing certain technologies, these things are going to happen, like it or not. And mm -hmm. I think we just have to pay close attention to that. And people are then free to decide which camp they want to be in. Well, very, very interesting discussion. And I look forward to hearing uh, more from your company in November then. Um, any closing remarks, Stephen? No, I'd just like to say thank you very much for the opportunity for me to be able to talk about our technology. And uh, if anybody has any more interest in what we're doing in terms of uh, liquid hydrogen or, or compressed gases hydrogen, 
then uh, by all means uh, feel free to, to get in touch. I'm sure they will. Thank you for turn, tuning in to the podcast of Gas Pathways, a new multimedia communication platform dedicated to innovation and technology in the natural gas industry. See you next time.